Amen. You may be seated this morning and open up your Bibles to Second John. Last week we finished First John, as we did a verse by verse study in First John, and so we want to look at John's second epistle in the back of your Bibles, New Testament, Second John, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. This this epistle. So Second John, Second and Third John, uh, those letters have been called by some postcards. Um, rather than letters, because they are both fairly short letters. And John only being 13 verses, 3 John is 14 verses. Matter of fact, even though 3 John has 14 verses, one more verse than 2 John, in the Greek it is shorter. Matter of fact, 3 John is the shortest epistle in the New Testament. But I think there can be a tendency for Christians, and uh, what they can do is, is, as we did, we spent time looking at John's first epistle, which was a wonderful study that we embarked on over the last couple of months. But then there can be a tendency to neglect the second and third letters that he wrote to the church. And so we know that God can say a lot, can't he, in 13 verses or in 14 verses. So this is a part of the canon of Scripture that we want to study them. We want to look at this carefully. And it is widely believed that as we open up and begin to talk about this epistle here of Second John, that it was shortly written, of course, after First John. And you might recall in our discussion, when we began to look at First John, that time frame where, which it is believed that the apostle would write these letters, it is kind of hard to get an exact date on any of the letters of the New Testament, uh, some of them when they were exactly written, but First John particularly. So it is believed by most scholars that these epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written sometime between the years 85 and 95 A.D. Now to give you a perspective on that once again is in 32, 33 A.D. is when Jesus was crucified. John, of course, being a young man at that time, perhaps even a teenager uh, when he was walking with the Lord. And it would be in that same time frame that the church would start. It would be in the years 67 A.D. that it is believed that Paul the Apostle and Peter were martyred as Caesar Nero would give the orders for them to be executed. And so that would be sometime over 30 years after the church had been started. But even now, we see that John here, as he's writing this epistle, if it's around 90 A.D., um, then this is many years after Paul the Apostle and Peter have gone home to be with the Lord. Matter of fact, we know that John at this time that he's writing this letter, he's the last of the, the original apostles, including Paul the Apostle, that is alive. He's the last one that is on the scene. He is now an elderly man. And as we have seen uh, in John's first letter, and as we're going to continue to see in Second and Third John, is that John, as he's at the end of his life, in his latter years, he really had a passion for the Christians to be established in truth because the church had its false teachers and prophets that were coming in and deceiving many. So in First John, we saw that it read more like a sermon. 
as John right away began to refute those false teachers that had come in. And he continued to do that, making sure that the Christians were established in truth concerning the ministry and life of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and then also concerning how it is that they are to live and then also how it is that they are to treat others. And so we see that John addressed that. He emphasized those things. He would call those false teachers antichrist. And having a passion for the Christians to be established in truth, he wants them to be able to walk in close fellowship with Jesus Christ. John was one that had a close fellowship with the Lord. And so he wants the Christians to be established in that as well. So he said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so what we are to do is walk in the light as he is in the light. In other words, walking in obedience. And so John stresses that in chapters 1 and 2 of his first epistle. Then he shifted gears, and he reminded us that God is love. And it was more than God just declaring his love for us, but it was God proving his love for you and for me, as the Father would send his Son to come to this world, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The son went freely and willingly to Calvary's cross to be the propitiation, as you recall, for our sins. That word propitiation means that Jesus met the sin uh, he, he met the sin requirement. That is, that he is the one that met the righteous requirement from a righteous God for the sin problem. That is, that he died for your sins and for my sins, making atonement for those sins. And then, as we saw, that he would emphasize that God loved us first. He initiated that love. Now we respond to that love. God's love is in us. And now we are going to love others in our lives. So God is light. God is love. And then, in the latter chapter, Chapter, uh, that is the last chapter, chapter 5, he emphasized to us once again that God is life, and in the Son there is life. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. So that was the major themes that we saw in 1 John, and some of those themes are going to be repeated again as we look at 2 John. So let's begin to look at this epistle as we read in 2 John, the elder. Now, in the ancient time, Letters would begin with the author of the letter identifying themselves. And that's the way it was. That's what we see in the other epistles that are in the New Testament. Again, an epistle is just a letter that was written by the apostles and, and that had apostolic authority to the Christians or to a particular church. And so here we see that the elder, as John begins to identify himself, I kind of like that. Because today in our society, of course, um, a lot of us, we, we don't write a whole lot of letters today because of technology. We have emails. But whether I get an email from somebody or I do get a letter from somebody, oftentimes I'll begin to read that letter or that email, and I'm thinking, who is this from? And I'll have to scroll all the way down or look at the back page to see who it's from because what we do is we address our names at the end of the letter or the end of the email. But I like this in ancient time. You know right away who it is that's writing to you. So that's what he does. He begins to identify himself, and he identifies himself as, as saying the elder. Now, John, as he, he calls himself the elder, identifies himself using that term. I don't think that he's using that term to refer to himself as being one that has the position or the office of an elder, even though he did. Because John, it is believed, if he is writing at this time between 85-95 A.D., he would write these letters 
right before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he would then write the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we discussed on Wednesday evening. But he is an elder because it is believed that he is pastoring the church at Ephesus at this time. So I don't think he's referring to that, that office of elder as he identifies himself, even though he is an elder, he's a pastor, he's also an apostle, and he would have apostolic authority. He isn't using this term to try to elevate himself. You know, I'm the elder. But what he does here is I believe that he identifies himself because, as the elder because he was known by the Christians by that name. It was a term of affection that they had for John, a term of respect that they had for him. So he identifies himself as the elder. They knew that this letter was coming from John as he would use that term, as he would identify himself in that way, the elder. And so they had great respect for John, the Christians did. They had a great admiration for him. He is, again, the last of the living apostles that is around, the last of the original apostles. And so they would look to John for guidance and for truth and for him to, to teach them and, and get them established in truth. You know, there are those that are in this fellowship that perhaps they don't have the, the office of an elder per se or, or they don't hold you know, that position or whatever, but they've been walking with the Lord for many years. And just their witness that they are to the body of Christ, their insight, their wisdom that they have to give, the godly character that they display in their lives is such a tremendous blessing, isn't it? It's a wonderful testimony and witness to the body of Christ. And so John, here he says the elder, and then he says to the elect lady and her children. So after he identifies himself, then he identifies who it is that he's writing to, to the elect lady and her children. Now it's been suggested by, by scholars throughout church history that John is writing perhaps to a particular Christian woman, that is the elect lady, and, and it's a woman that has children. Others have said no, it's just a symbolic way of addressing a particular church or congregation the church being called the elect lady, and then the members, her children. And, and that's a possibility. I personally think, and we cannot be dogmatic on this, and either way, whether you believe it's an individual that he's writing to, a lady that has children, or it's a congregation and its members, it isn't going to change the truth and the context of what John is writing about here in this epistle. But I believe that he is writing to a church here. And as you look at the nature of the epistle's context, I think it is more appropriate for a church and its members, congregation. So why doesn't John just identify himself using his name and the name of the, the church that he's addressing if it is a particular congregation, a church that he is writing to? Well, it could be that John is trying to protect them. Now, you recall, if you were with us on Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about what it was like in that first century, the emperors that were ruling during the time of, of Jesus' birth all the way up to the time that John wrote the, the book of Revelation. And if he is writing between those years of 85 and 95 A.D., which he probably is, 
there's an emperor that's ruling at that time called Domitian. And Domitian hated Christians. He hated Jesus Christ. He hated the thought that these Christians were given their devotion and their worship and their allegiance to a man that Rome had crucified, but yet claims were being made that he resurrected from the grave and that he's going to return and establish his kingdom. And Domitian, he wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be seen as God. So they said in, in that first century, history records, that Domitian was one of the, the worst persecutors, even worse than Caesar Nero, of the early church. Under the reign of Domitian, he killed millions of Christians, and his persecution was very systematic. That is, he was very cunning. He was very thoughtful about how it was that he was going to persecute the Christians. So it could be that John is trying to protect this particular congregation by using symbolic language. That he's writing to a church that perhaps at this time is experiencing persecution by the hands of Domitian. And, and so John doesn't want this to take the chance of this letter falling into the hands of the Roman authorities and then they identify this church and then they are persecuted even further. It very well could be that way. So he's using symbolic language, the elder and to the elect lady referring to the church. But again, we can't be dogmatic about that. But verse 1 is we read it in totality. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So John, we have seen in this first epistle, emphasizes love. He's going to, to continue to emphasize that in Second John. And he also, as we saw in his first epistle, emphasized truth, didn't he? And he's going to do that as well in this epistle, as well as 3 John. Now, we discussed in 1 John that truth and love are linked together. Those are two of John's favorite topics. The apostle love here is saying in his greeting to this individual and her family, or more probable to this congregation, is that you are loved. You are loved by me in truth. And all who know truth, he's speaking of other Christians, he's encouraging them. And how this, this church or this, this family needed to be encouraged by John and by the other Christians. They needed to be reminded that you are loved. You are loved by us who, who has truth that abides in us, who are Christians, who know the truth. And how you and I, we need to have a place that we can come to, that we are reminded that, hey, you are loved by other brothers and sisters in Christ. You are loved by the Lord. And especially when we're going through difficult days and hard times, how important it is for us to remind each other of Christ's love, to encourage each other, to remind our love in Christ for other brothers and sisters. And I pray that this is a place that we do that. So oftentimes in the church today, there's emphasis on other things. And, and what we need to do is look at Scripture. And we see here, John, at the end of his life, he's emphasizing some very simple things, but very important things. That is truth, and that is love. And you are loved, elect lady, and your children are loved. And you need to know this all by all those who have truth, and the truth abides in us. And we need to know as we come into this place, after we've had people come down on us or come against us or had a tough week or we're going through loss or difficulties or sorrows, whatever it might be, that we are loved by other brothers and sisters because the world isn't going to love us. So where are we going to receive that love? 
It needs to be from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's what John is doing here. And so we as Christians, we know truth. The truth abides in us. We will be with us uh, forever. And, and here John, of course, he's emphasizing that as well. And so verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So John here, given his greeting, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Grace, of course, means that unmerited favor of God. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That is God's love, his forgiveness, eternal life. We didn't deserve those things. But because we experienced the fullness of God's grace, we've experienced that as we've turned to him. He loves us. We've experienced forgiveness as we've committed our lives to him. We've experienced and, and we have eternal life. Also, we have his mercy. And mercy, we know, is getting what, uh, not getting what we do deserve. So grace here is that unmerited favor of God getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, and that is hell. Sometimes Christians will say to me, I deserve this, and I deserve this ministry, and I deserve that. The only thing that you and I really deserve is hell, if we want to get down to it. I did a good job of deserving hell in my rebellion and sin against God, but I've received his grace, I've received his his mercy, I'm not going to go to hell because of what Jesus Christ did for me as I give my heart to him. And because we've experienced the fullness of God's grace and the fullness of his mercy, then we have peace. Then we can have peace. We have, first of all, peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. And then we have the peace of God that can rule in our hearts. And you cannot have peace unless first you have God's grace and mercy. It comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Now understand this, and Paul, he will give in his epistles, as you know, when he's given his greetings to whoever it is that he's writing to, he would say grace and peace, and that dual greeting to them. And it's always grace, mercy, before peace, isn't it? Because again, you can't have peace unless you have mercy and grace. But understand too, as Paul would say, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, when John does that, when Paul does that, the other apostles do that in their epistles, they are putting God the Father and Jesus Christ on the same level. I'll, I'll make my point with this. If I was to say and write to you that grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Pastor Jeff, well, from Pastor Jeff, you can you know, drive the car off the cliff. It doesn't, I can't give you the fullness of God's grace and his mercy. I can extend that grace to you just as John is doing here in his greeting to them, but I can't give it to you in the way that God gives the fullness of his grace and mercy and his peace to you. But it does come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's putting them on equal ground, on equal level, that they are indeed one. So grace, mercy, and peace, it comes from God. It is experienced in truth and love. And so again, truth and love are linked together in this second epistle of John. So John is making the point in this short letter that we are to walk in truth and in love. He's going to continue to do that, the truth of God's word and in his love, that is agape love. And then as he continues, we're going to see that he's going to address and warn uh, us in, in the church of false teachers called Antichrist. But this family here that he's writing to, or this congregation they are being reminded that genuine love will never compromise truth. Genuine love will never go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. If there is compromise, 
on our expression of that which is false, then it's not genuine love or it is not the love of God that's being expressed. So truth keeps our expression of love towards others safe. It is doing what is best for that other person. And we need to understand that, especially in the day in which we're living. Because as Christians, and I think it's going to get worse as we get closer to the return of the Lord. The world's going to come along, society's going to come along and tell us that as we give truth concerning what God's word declares about who Jesus Christ is and about eternal life, that it comes through Jesus Christ alone, as we declare what the word of God has to say about sin, to an individual or about society, then the world comes along and says that you're not being loving, that you're being intolerant, that, you, that you're being hateful, that, that you are being mean, you're, you're being narrow-minded, all these things that we can be accused of. So what happens is, is Christians or even pastors of churches start to compromise the truth of God's word concerning Jesus Christ, concerning salvation, concerning sin, so not to offend others or to upset them. Or we'll just accept anything as, as truth as long as they are being sincere. Or we may not look at it as they do, but we don't want to say anything concerning sin or call that sin because, you know what, that's not very nice to do. But the thing is, that's not genuine love. Because love says, I care enough about you to say God's word declares that that is wrong. Or God's word declares and determines and defines who Jesus Christ is. It is the word of God that says and truth says how it is that we can have eternal life. And if we're not willing to express that to others, again, doing what is best for them, then that's not genuine love towards them. Really, it's selfishness is what it is. It is saying that I don't want to, to have you upset at me because I care more about how, how I am liked and I am looked at and stuff. And again, genuine love, as, as truth and love go together, agape love, doing what is best for that other person, giving them the truth, it's not always the easiest. But it is the way that we express our love to others. And so as Christians, we stand fast in the faith. And I am so thankful that somebody loved me enough to give me the truth. To give me the truth concerning Jesus Christ and salvation and about sin. And that's what John is doing in this epistle. So verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And so one thing that really blessed John's heart is when the Christians were walking in truth. And that's what should bless the heart of any pastor. That should be what is the blessing of the heart of, of any parent, to see people, or in the case of a parent, their children walking in truth. John wasn't primarily concerned about how popular he was or how highly esteemed he was in, in the world or how big his church was. But as he gets near the end of his life, John, being that elderly man, he says that some of you, some of your children are walking in truth, and that's what really blessed his heart. You know, as a parent, and I think for any of us that are parents, we want what's best for our kids. We want them to succeed, don't we? We want them to succeed in school. We want them to succeed in the things that they are involved in, whether it's in sports, whether it's playing an instrument, whether it's some other hobby or some other, you know, activity that they're involved in. Whatever it is that they do, 
we want our kids to succeed in that and be the very best. And I think that's important that we encourage them and, and, and try to work with them and, and, and to going in that direction. Those things are important, aren't they? But I want us to keep a proper perspective on things because, you see, the way that they can truly be successful, whatever it is that they do in life, is by walking with the Lord. That's when they are truly successful. Yes, we want them to be successful in getting an education and in their careers or in their business or in their activities and all of that. We want to encourage them, but keep the proper perspective on things. You know, my two olders are in, involved in sports, and, you know, it's a little bit kind of a, a rough week for them. Luke is, you know, quarterbacking the team and for the first time and had their first game, and I, you know, know there's a couple passes that he wished he could get back that he threw, and I talked to Barbara, who's at a volleyball tournament, and she, you know, out of town, and talked to her on the phone yesterday, just kind of a little disappointed about some things, and, you know, how she played, and all that, and I tried to encourage her, and we'll continue to encourage her, and working with her, and encourage her to work hard, and, and all of that, so she can do her very best, you know, Luke was afraid that we're going to start being called the Jake Plummer family, you know, and <laughs> We'll have to move, Dad, and all of this. <laughs> but I always remind them, and, and I will continue to do so, that I want you to do very best in school. You know, I want you to excel in the things that you do. But more than anything, what will bless my heart is that whatever it is that you do, and as you grow up, is that you're walking with the Lord and that you're walking with truth. And we all know people that, to the world, they're very successful. They excel in certain things. And, and it seems like they have it all, but they're not walking with the Lord. They're not walking in truth. And so many of those people are empty and, and discouraged and depressed. And there's a void in their life. And the way for them to truly have joy and be successful in the best sense of the word is that you as a parent, that you encourage your kids, and me as a pastor to encourage this congregation, you guys walk in truth. Walk with the Lord and stand fast in truth. And that's where you're going to experience the fullness of God's joy as we have seen, as John would write, and Jesus said himself, keeping his commandments, walking with the Lord. That's what we want to do. And so verse 5, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So again, this emphasis with John that we saw in his first epistle that once again, he shows us in this epistle, Jesus has commanded us that we are to love one another. Jesus said, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. And we saw in 1 John chapter 4 that John wrote, if someone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. And then he would continue to write in that chapter that he who loves God must love his brother also. And John would remind us that God's commandments are not burdensome. In other words, we can think, I'm supposed to love that brother and sister. But here's the thing. As we are born again by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, God's commandments are God's enablements. He doesn't just leave it to ourselves to try to love others with this agape love. We can't do it. It is God working in us and then working that love through us as we are yielded to him. And so he will enable us to love others as we are submitted to him and walking with him and as we give our hearts to him. In verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So another emphasis that, that we saw in 1 John, that not only are truth and love 
that are linked together, but also obedience and love are linked together. That if we do love God, we keep his commandments. And so love will be expressed in our lives by obedience to God, walking in that truth, walking in his commandments, and also is going to do what is best for that other person, doing what is right and good for that brother and sister. We're not going to try to rip them off. We're not going to try to deceive them. We're not going to tear them down. We're not going to gossip against them. We're not going to criticize them, but we're going to encourage them. And when we do give rebuke or correction, it's going to be out of a motivation and attitude of love. And so it is a commandment given to us. So truth and love are linked together, and then obedience and love are linked together as well. And now as we move into verse 7 through through verse 11, John will warn this lady, this congregation of false teachers. For many deceivers have gone on into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It always does intrigue me, and I hope it's starting to, to, to kind of resonate in your mind as we go through the scriptures here, how it would be John as well as Peter and Paul and, and even Jesus. Whenever they talked about deceivers and false teachers and prophets and Christ that were present in the church, they would always say many. And here John says that there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world. And I don't think that John is exaggerating. There have always been, since the earliest days of the church, many that are deceiving, that are false teachers, false prophets, false Christs that have come along. We know that Paul the Apostle, when we get into the book of Galatians, which we are going to in a couple weeks, it'll be one of the books that we're going to start pretty soon, Paul would write that a epistle very early in his ministry his first missionary journey would be in that province of Galatia Derby and Lystra and, and some of the other cities that perhaps you're familiar with that are listed there in the book of Acts churches would be started there and Paul would give them the gospel and they would celebrate their their you know being born again and just loving the Lord but then those Judaizers would come in behind Paul and, and they would present another gospel as he would write in Galatians chapter 1. He, and Paul would say, I marvel that you so readily just you know, accept this other gospel which is not the gospel. And the Judaizers would say, yeah, that's fine that you have faith in Jesus Christ, but you've got to keep the law if you really are going to be saved. And so Paul and Peter and John, they were always dealing with those who would come in behind them and refute and and, uh, contradict the things that they would teach. There's only one gospel. Paul says there's only one gospel. Here we're going to see that John's going to write there's the doctrine of Christ. He's saying there's one gospel. And anybody that comes along and presents another gospel is a deceiver. They are an antichrist. And of course, Paul, he would warn Timothy as he would say that in, you know, that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus said that the times concerning the, the days close to his coming, that there are going to be false Christs and prophets that are going to rise up, many of them, showing great signs and wonders, deceiving many. So we need to understand, and we're told throughout scriptures, that Until the Lord returns, there's going to be many deceivers and antichrists that will be out there in the world, and that's just the way it's going to be. And especially in the day in which we are living, then we need to be deceiving, or discerning, that is, of those who are deceiving. And we need to be wise and do what is commanded of us in 1 John chapter 4, and that is to test the spirits. 
to see if they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so we discovered that the way to test the spirits that we, as we discuss in 1 John chapter 4 is by filtering through the word of God. The word of God is our final authority. And so now you can see why John was wanting to make sure that the Christians were established in truth as he writes these letters. Paul was the same way as he wrote to Timothy, that last epistle that we have recorded of him in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, after he told Timothy that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse, he said, Timothy, you must, not that you should or it's a good idea, but you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so we have the Word of God, that we can test the spirits. And you recall in 1 John chapter 2 that the apostle told us that we also have the Holy Spirit. We have an anointing from the Holy Spirit that is available to give us discernment. So you watch somebody on TV or somebody comes knocking on your door and they start saying things in misrepresenting Jesus Christ or saying things that contradict what the Word of God has to say about salvation. And your heart starts going, that doesn't sound right. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, giving you discernment, and that anointing is available for all of us. And so we need to have that spirit of discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit in our lives in these days, and then you can confirm it with what the Word of God has to say. Sometimes people will say, or Christians even, well, that's not being very loving in calling somebody a deceiver or a liar. But the Scripture says that we are to be ones that we are to expose those who are being deceiving. Not just to say, well, they're sincere, or we shouldn't judge them. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged? I don't know how many of you have had people say that to you. When you say, you know, that person or this group is really deceiving and it's not true what they're saying. Well, you shouldn't judge them. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says that, The context is he's saying don't judge the condemnation. But in that same chapter he says beware of false teachers and prophets. And you'll know them by their fruit. So to to beware of false teachers or prophets, that takes an assessment or some kind of judgment. So the scripture never, never tells us that we're just to accept anything and everything that is said or done in the name of Christ. And the worst liars on the face of the earth is the religious liar that misrepresents Christ in the message of salvation. They will give the appearance of leading people to God, but in reality, as Peter states in 2 Peter chapter 2, their ways are destructive. And the word deceived here means to lead astray. They're drawing people away from God, not to God. Now, if I'm, for example, as I've done, if I'm walking the streets of of, Chiang Rai, they're in northern Thailand, and somebody comes up and opens their coats, and they got a bunch of watches and stuff. And they say, this is a Rolex watch you can buy for 10 bucks. So I buy a Rolex watch for 10 bucks, and, you know, a month later, it quits on me. It's not a real Rolex watch. You know, I, I got deceived. I, I, I got tricked. But all I lost was $10. I lost a little bit of money. But the thing is, spiritually, deceivers, the consequences can be eternal. And the consequences are great. And John, because of love for others, and that love being expressed in truth, he warns the believers, you and me, he says it is a big deal. 
And it is serious to misrepresent God, to misrepresent Christ and salvation. Because the consequences are real and eternal. So there were the Gnostics coming in and and saying Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh. There were those who were denying the deity of Jesus. He says, you're a deceiver, you're an antichrist. Beware of them. Beware of them, elect lady and children. In verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. These two verses really kind of intrigue me. I think they're important for us to look at. Look to yourselves, verse 8. In other words, he's saying watch out for yourselves because it is possible to go backwards to compromise what you have accomplished. You, You have the fundamental truths, but then you begin to entertain that which is false. You begin to get sucked into that which is false. Or perhaps maybe you get to that point where you don't want to warn others against that which is false. It is a responsibility for you, for me individually, to watch out and be sober. I will help you in every way that we can as we come and we study the Scriptures in its context. That's why we go through the Scriptures verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So you can be grounded in truth. But the thing is, it's your responsibility when you hear things and you see things to test the spirits to see if they are true, to filter it through the Word of God. And that is something that every Christian needs to do today. And in verse 8 here, it's interesting. He talks about that compromise that can lead to a, a loss of rewards. Not salvation, but rewards. And again, I will refer you to last week's tape when we talked about as Christians... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, also Romans chapter 14, Paul writes that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema reward seat. And we're not going to be judged for our sins. That was taken care of by Jesus on Calvary's cross. But we are going to be judged what we have done in the body, whether good or bad, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And we'll receive rewards for that. So he's talking about a loss of rewards. In other words, don't get so sidetracked into accepting or being wishy-washy or being tossed to and fro by that which is false, that which is not true, that you, you end up losing a reward in that. And that is something I think that, that we see perhaps today. Well, I'm not going to warn them against this group. And pastors that are saying, well, even though they don't have the same you know, beliefs and biblical truths that we stand on, they're still okay, they're still sincere. We need to accept them. We don't want to be exclusive in all of this. We can still show love to them, but we show love to them by saying that this is what the truth of God's word has to say, and you standing in truth. So he talks about a loss of reward, which is interesting. But then he gives another warning here in verse 9. And he says, whoever transgresses, that word means to cross the line or go beyond the boundaries. And if you go too far, the biblical boundaries of the doctrine of Christ who he is, what he has done for us, as God has declared. Remember, God has defined through his word. He has revealed to us who Jesus Christ is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh, manifested to us. He is eternal from all eternity past. All that John made sure that we were established in in the first epistle. So it is the word of God that declares who Jesus is, salvation, what he has done for us, how it is that we can have eternal life. Man does not define that. Man likes to define that. Well, this is how you're going to have eternal life. Or this is, you know, what I think of God. Or who he is. 
in all of this, but it is the Word of God that defines and reveals to us who Jesus Christ is, how to have eternal life, forgiveness of sin. And anyone who, who speaks contrary to that does not have the doctrine of Christ is not of God, is what he says here. Does not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what he's saying. You do not have God. To deny the biblical Jesus is to reject the Father and the Son. That's why, you know, teaching a false Christ is so serious. The master deceiver, or Satan, he doesn't want you to know the true Jesus. He'd rather you be deceived and believe in a false Jesus. And so John makes it very clear that if you transgress, go beyond that biblical guidelines of the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God. And then verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If someone comes to you and they deny the doctrine of Christ, they want to present or promote a false Christ, we're told not to be hospitable to them, not to give aid to them, don't fellowship with them. It doesn't mean you can't talk to them. It doesn't mean that you can't talk to them about the truth. John is saying that, you know, somebody from the cults comes walking up your sidewalk. You don't sick the dog on them. You don't squirt them with the hose. I've, you know, I've had people say, oh, you know, I squirt them with the hose. And <laughs> you can talk with them. You can dialogue with them. I do. I remember when, whenever a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon would come on, a, you know, to the door years ago, you know, when I first became a Christian and then, you know, started growing in the Word, man, I, I'd say I couldn't wait to, to dialogue with them. But when I did, I'd be all over the place. Well, what about the 144,000? And what about, you know, you believe in three heavens? And what about this? And what about that? And I, boy, I had it all down. I was going to show them they were false. But now over time, I go right to the point who Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? And then I'll show you from the Word of God who God in the Word of God declares who Jesus is. I go right to who Jesus is and then salvation, grace of God, to those two points, and I stick to that. To really get them thinking, to really get them seeing that the Jesus that they declare is not the Jesus of the Bible. But be that as it may, I don't invite them in and say, why don't you have dinner with me and here's some cookies that I bake for you and that's interesting what you believe in. And God bless you guys and, you know, have a great day and, and all of this. I'm not nasty and rude and, and, and all of this to them. But in love, we would give them truth. And, and here John is saying, and we're going to talk a little bit about this more next time, but there was a lot of traveling preachers in that day and that would come and they would look for a place to stay and stuff. And John is saying, those who are false, you don't aid them. You're not hospitable to them. And verse 12, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. You know, we love to send emails and letters and postcards and things to friends and families and loved ones. But I'll tell you what, what really brings us joy is when we're able to see them face to face, isn't it? And that's what John is saying. I hope to see you face to face and then as we finish, the children of your elect sister greets you. Amen. I, I think that here again, that verse 13 kind of just fits more into the context and the nature of these other Christians here. I greet you Christians because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. They send their love. They send their greeting. They remember you. So God bless you. 
Amen. And Father, we thank you for this short epistle. We thank you that we can go through it this morning and just be blessed as we study it and be reminded of these things. Just as it would be Peter that said, I will be not negligent to remind you of these things, though you be established in them. And Lord, we want to be established in truth, how important it is to be established in truth. We want to be established in the fact that we are to walk with you and keep your commandments. And then we are to be established in love, that we not only love you, but we are to love our brothers and sisters. And that really is what we are to be about as believers in Christ. So, Father, I pray if there is anyone that happens to be here this morning or perhaps out in a coffee shop, that they haven't given their heart to Jesus Christ, that the Bible is very clear that He is God's Son and that He came and died for you because all of us have sinned. And so the only way to eternal life and to the Father is through Jesus Christ who died for you, made atonement, and rose again after three days. And you can receive Him in your heart just as you sit by faith as you believe what the Bible declares, that He who has the Son has eternal life. And you can pray in your heart, Jesus, come into my life. I have sinned. And I know that you died for my sins on Calvary's cross, that you are God's Son. So forgive me, be my Lord and Savior, and I believe that you're alive, you rose again. And I turn to you now for salvation. And I repent from the way that I was living, and now, Lord, I want to live the way that you want me to live, to walk in your ways. The Lord, so please help me to do that. I thank you for your love, and I thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. And for all of us, that as we come to the communion table, that truly that we would enter into communion with you, Lord, remembering the cup of suffering death that Jesus took upon himself as he went to Calvary's cross, allowing his body to be broken, his, his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sin, that without that we have no reason to be meeting here this morning. We know that Jesus suffered greatly for us. And so, Lord, we come and we hold the communion elements, his body, his blood, remembering what he did for us and providing salvation, proving his love for us in Jesus' name. The usher is going to hand out the communion elements.